Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirsty McGuire, Executive Director of PE Win. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network, also known as PE Win. We are the preeminent organization for senior level women investment professionals in private equity. PE Win provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of P.E. Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. Welcome to the latest episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Kelly Williams, the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation, and the very proud founding chair of the Private Equity Women Investor Network. And I am so excited today to have my friend, Chrissy Pariso, as my guest. Chrissy, as most of you know, is the managing director of Empowered Capital. She's been doing extraordinary things. And as long as I've known her, she's been one of the most brave LPs I know. There's no question that she is uh, she is afraid to ask. And uh, she's legendary for that. We're all very proud of her because of that. But um, first, Chrissy, let me welcome you to Moments That Made Her. Kelly, thank you so much. I'm so honored that you would ask me to be part of this. But before we get started, I want to actually share something funny because I was telling my kids this morning that I was going to be recording a podcast. And now they think I'm podcast, podcast famous. So I want to thank you for that. Um, and I want to give a shout out to my kids, Bennett, Connor, Riley, and Morgan. So they'll feel special. That is awesome. That is so fun. Well, yeah. I mean, in my house, I don't know about you, but my house, the only podcasts we listen to are murder podcasts. <laughs> so I, I promise you it won't be it won't be like that here. There won't be quite as much drama, but usually, uh, usually that's what you can hear in on the background in my house. Um, so first I'm gonna start with where I always start, which is at the beginning, and ask you to tell us a little bit about key moments in your early life. You know, tell us a bit about how and where you grew up. Yeah, so I grew up in New Jersey. So can't you tell from my strong New Jersey accent? Um, yes. But my, I know, right? Really, it really comes out when I say water and mall. <laughs> yeah, no, my husband, my husband, who's from the Midwest, teases me all the time. I guess the question of a Jersey girl is what exit, right? Yeah, I'm exit 178. So I'm really North Jersey. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, my parents, they immigrated to the US from Taiwan to pursue their graduate degrees at Illinois State. And then they ended up moving to New Jersey to really build a life for themselves and our family. 
And so my dad worked in IT and then started a company when I was in high school, and he's actually still working. My mom was a stay-at-home mom and then uh, got a job at a bank, and then she retired and really picked up line dancing and became competitive at line dancing. Um, so I have two older brothers, one who has cerebral palsy. And I would say, have to say my parents have has had such a tremendous influence on my life. Um, they've instilled such a strong sense of family, um, a great work ethic. I saw how hard my parents worked to make um, a better life for, for us and really a deep appreciation for my culture and who I am. Although I would have to say early on when I was growing up, all I wanted to do was fit in. So I grew up in a very non-diverse area in northern New Jersey. I was one of two Chinese people in my grade, and that was kind of pretty much it for diversity. And I remember that my mom made me bring egg drop soup to lunch. And I was so embarrassed because all I wanted to bring, to bring was bologna sandwiches. Um, so it was all about wanting to fit in, right? Um, and I was a nerd. I loved math, loved to read, played the piano, tennis. I was like your typical Asian student, was in band, student government, um, had a great core group of friends. But when I was younger, I, I was bullied and I experienced racism. And I still remember that experience to this, to this day. It was in middle school. And actually, it was a girl. She called me a racist word and then told me to go back to China. And it it stayed with me ever since. And I really took that experience and it drove me. And I think that's why I have a, such a strong desire to stand up for what's right, to stand up to bullies and to stand up for people who can't stand up for themselves. Well, that's a great background to share. Gosh, there's so much to talk about there. I guess the first thing is how did uh, your mom's line dancing affect you? Are you a great <laughs> dancer? Actually, I, I, I'm a great dancer in different ways, more free form. Um, but my mom did rope me in to some of her line dance performances. And she was, she's so funny because um, she was doing competition and then she stopped. And then I'm like, mom, why are you stopping? She's like, why do I have to compete when I know I'm good? Um, wow. <laughs> so I thought that was a funny thing my mom said, but she still line dances to this day and it keeps her active. Um, but yeah, and at our wedding, she actually taught a line dance to um, promiscuous girl at my wedding. And so all my <laughs> friends thought that was the most amazing wedding. That's so cool. That is that is amazing. Um, so how would you say having a, a sibling who's differently abled impacted you and, and made you think about your life and your career? Yeah, I think I don't think I appreciated it as much when I was growing up, because I think when you're a kid, you think about you and your friends and everything. Um, but then when I grew up, it was more like being protective and wanting to make sure that he got the experiences, he got the opportunities that other people did, right? And um, I would saw how he would be treated um, in high school. Um, and so I think that also made me just want to stand and made really instilled, you know, wanting to protect and wanting to stand up for people who can't and who don't have a voice. And so, and I know, you know, you know, eventually, like, I'm, I'm going to be the one to take care of him when my parents end up, you know, moving on. And so I think it's just that familial duty that I have to, um, to my family and to people that 
um, don't have the same opportunities as others. Yeah. Um, I, I, I relate to that very much. I also related to your, your comment about bringing the egg drop soup to school because my mom always tells the story. My mom's Italian and her mother would send her to school with things like, you know, a tripe sandwich, which of course, you know, what kid brings that to school? She didn't know any better. And she, it's just like you. She says exactly the same thing. She All she wanted was a bologna sandwich because that's what the mm-hmm. other kids had. And she had to bring these weird ethnic, um, you know, cultural foods with her because that's what they ate at home. My parent, you know, my mom grew up never having gone to a restaurant. She didn't, you know, she didn't really even see a restaurant until she started dating my dad, I think. So um, it, it's very interesting how you remember that. And, uh, you know, your story about bullying, I mean, I think so many people go through that in one way or another. And, you know, I think probably when we were kids, you know, we were just supposed to get over it. We didn't really talk about it Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, and now it's, it's become an epidemic because of, you know, social media. Um, But I think for many people, hopefully who survived it, they realize and pass on the story that you can survive it. And that it's not really a weakness in you, it's a weakness in the other person. Yeah, no, completely agree. And I think it it has gotten worse now, right? Because of social media. Because back in the day when you were bullied, you you had a safe place to go to, right? You could go back to your home versus now it just follows you everywhere. And so I think it is really kind of highlighting to, to p- the kids today that and this is what I just try to highlight to my kids as well is like, just be good people, right? Treat people with kindness. If you see that there's kids that be, are being left out, include them, right? If you see people that are getting picked on, stand up for them. I tell my kids all the time, you won't get in trouble if you stand up to a bully, if you get in a fight, like, because you're standing up for what's right. And I'll be more proud of you for you to standing up for what's right than to be a, what's that word? Uh, to be a bystander. Um, so it's just doing what's right. Yeah. Well, so, um, given your, your upbringing in Jersey, what was your very first job? So my very, very first job was when I was in middle school. Um, I was in sixth grade and I worked at my family friend's Chinese takeout restaurant, taking orders and preparing the orders. And I remember I got paid four fifty an hour cash. And also at the end of my shift, I would get a quart of beef lo mein at, after working three hours. So <laughs> and I, I still remember it to this day. Um, and I always continued working. So I was also a cashier at a fruit and vegetable store and a waitress um, throughout high school. And I, re- I, I recognized that being in the service industry early on made me realize the value of good customer service, not only as you, the person delivering it to you, to the customer, but just how important it is. And so I think even, you know, truthfully, I was looking back on it at such a young age, I liked making money, right? I liked the freedoms that I get by even earning a couple of dollars and kind of what you were talking about, like my parents were immigrants. They were really frugal. Like our idea of a night out was like going to the Sizzler where it was like all you could eat buffet right? And they net, we never had babysitters. My parents never really did anything because uh, they were really frugal. And I remember when I wanted to buy kids, I know this is really dating myself. My mom refused to buy them 
because she would say, why would I spend $20 when I could get them at Kmart for five? And so I learned at a young age, the idea of like value and discounts. Um, <laughs> and so I recognized that, you know, I like math, numbers, money. And so I knew that eventually I wanted to have a career in business because my dad was in business as well. So that really led me to go to Georgetown undergraduate um, for my undergraduate degree in their business school. And then I would say from there, like my first real job was um, investment banking at CIBC World Markets. And that was my first real job. Hmm. That's that's so interesting. It's funny. I think, um, you know, I grew up like you, a very frugal uh, family background. And I'm the first person in my family ever go to college. So, um, you know, I didn't have that kind of uh, path or experience in my my family. But it, it follows me to this day. You know, even when you have the ability to, you know, to to buy things, I always look for a discount. <laughs> I still go to outlet malls. <laughs> I can't, you know, I just can't, I can't help myself. I love a bargain. And, um, you know, why not? Yeah, why, I can't why pay, pay retail? price for anything. Right. My husband always says, like, he's like, Chrissy, even if it's 50% off, you're still spending money. He's like, you're still spending the other 50%. You're not saving money. I'm like, no, we're saving. We're st- I got to get things on sale. And I, I taught my kids that too. That makes me super proud. We love going to Costco. Like, yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, and my on my uh, our, on, on my text thread with my mother and my sister and my niece, we're always sharing the bargains that we just got, and you know we we've trained my niece to be a super shopper, just like the rest of us. So, um, yeah, I think there's probably a lot of similarities in our backgrounds in terms of of that, and and the and the and the pride of that. Um, so so mm-hmm. talk a little. You started to talk about this, but um, what led you to focus? you know, in, when you were at Georgetown on, on this career path that you ended up on? Yeah. So, um, well, I knew I wanted to go into business. Um, so at Georgetown, everyone in the business school was either kind of recruiting for accounting or investment banking. And you would just hear stories that, you know, investment banking, that's just like the right job to do right out of undergrad you know, it's a job where there's a steep learning curve. You know, you'll learn a lot in terms of financial modeling. You'll pull all-nighters, which is, I was excited to really learn a lot. So I kind of just got pulled into it because everyone was talking about investment banking. And and this was, you know, in the late 90s. And so, um, so I just started recruiting for investment banking, which I thought was the right starting starting point. And I think looking back on it, I got two wins from investment banking um, I believe that it really helped me lay the right fo- financial f- foundation from learning how to, f- you know, build a model, learning how to read those financial statements. Um, and also, this was where I actually met my husband, Jason, um, who I'll be celebrating 15 years of marriage with and who I have four amazing children with. So I said that's like this the second benefit of investment banking was uh, <laughs> my husband and my kids. Oh, that's, that's, uh, it's great to, to look at it that way. You know, I, as many people know, I started my career as a lawyer and I, um, and I always knew I would be a lawyer. So I, I got, I think the experience, as you said, lawyers are all about client service. I mean, that's how you make your money. Um, but also, uh, one of the lawyers that I interned with ended up 
introducing me to my husband. <laughs> they had gone to sailing camp together as kids. And so, yeah, you know, there, there's always a, maybe a, a, an extra added benefit if you choose the right career path. Um, so given that you were an investment banker, when did you make the pivot towards private equity? Yeah, so I did, I lasted in investment banking for two and a half years. Um, after that, I did try, you, you just hear like, oh, you do investment banking, you do private equity. So I did try to get a role in private equity. Um, and I remember I interviewed with Carlisle and I bombed the interview. <laughs> I completely bombed this. I didn't get that. Um, I didn't get the job, obviously, but it ended up being the right thing for me because then I pivoted. Um, and I ended up moving to Austin, Texas, and I worked for Dell Financial Services and the Treasury Department. I was the second hire, and I was hired to really help build out their securitization program. Um, and it was great because my recommendations, my analysis was having a direct P&L impact to Dell's, to Dell's financial statements. It was a great operational experience for me. I was there for about three and a half years, but I still knew I wanted to get back into private equity. And I recognized that I needed to go back to business school to be able to effectuate that transition since I was really a career switcher. So I ended up applying to University of Chicago and ended up going there to get my MBA. Um, the GSB, or now Booth as what they call it, had a private equity lab, which was a really great program that allowed students to intern during the spring quarter at local private equity shops in Chicago. So I landed an internship at Sterling Partners, who was a um, operationally focused mid-market buyout shop. And they really liked my blend of investment banking experience and my operational experience at Dell as well. And so that spring internship ended up land, um, going leading into a summer internship. And then at the end of the summer, I was actually offered the opportunity to join Sterling full time. And that was a really interesting decision because I had to balance working full-time at a private equity firm and I didn't want to give up business school yet. And so I was actually finishing up my second year as a full-time student. So I was doing both full-time and I was able to work Monday through Thursdays full-time for Sterling. And then they gave me Fridays off so I could take classes Fridays and Saturdays so I could do both. I did have to say second year, I did not absorb as much in the classes. Um, I took a lot of classes just to pass and I missed out on a couple of really fun social activities, but I loved it because I was getting really great real life work experience during my time. Um, and with private equity, like I really love the experience of investing in companies, the diligence, the modeling, meeting the management companies, really understanding where that value creation comes from and also looking at the risk and the upside. And I think private equity is such a dynamic industry and I just I just love being part of it. So let me ask you this, did Jason follow you along on this, this journey to, to Chicago for your MBA? Yeah, it's funny. Well, he, we, we, we've taken turns. So Jason moved to Austin first. And so that's what also led me to look for that opportunity in Austin for Dell Financial Services. And so um, we were dating. And by that time, we were dating for probably about five or six years. And I was ready to apply for business school. And I told Jason, I was like, you know, I'm going to be applying for business school. So, you know, if we get married before then, 
you probably you seal the deal, right? Um, otherwise, if we don't get married and go to business school, you never know what's going to happen. So <laughs> we literally, he, he proposed in September and we got married at the end of July and went on our honeymoon. And a week later, he drove me up to Chicago um, for business school. And he ended up staying in Austin for about a year. So we actually were living apart for a year um, until he finally moved up to Chicago. Um, but yeah, that that's, uh, and now we've been in Chicago for 15, 16 years now. It's crazy how long we've been here for. Yeah. Wow. Well, it's interesting. I always get, I'm sure you do too. Um, when I talk to younger women, um, they ask me obviously about the career path, but usually by the third or fourth question, I start getting questions about how, you know, finding a partner and, and how do you do that? How do you think about that when you're a woman in business, when you're, you know, you're ambitious, you don't see yourself ever stepping back from your career. And I think you just gave a really good example because it often works really well. I think when people are willing to switch who has the alpha career or at least the alpha path at any given time, um, because sometimes it's, you know, it's your time to put your foot on the gas and sometimes it's your partner's time. And if you make room for each other, I think at the end of the day, you end up in the same place. You end up in a very good place. Um, and, and you sort of obviate those periods of resentment or, you know, feeling like you're not giving, get, getting your chance to shine. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. I think it's because being in a relationship is it's a partnership, right? It's about compromise, right? And it's about knowing when, you know, the people in the relationship, when they when they're looking to be more, you know, aggressive and wanting to push forward versus other people wanting to step back. And it, there are relationships where I've seen where it's like two both hard chargers, right? That are moving it forward. And where I see where that's been successful is that they have a great support system around them. Like you know what, you can't do it all on your own. You have to rely on your community, the people around you, not only your family, but you know, your friends, your networks, your colleagues. And so I think it's like you can't have the 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 myth of being able to have it all, like it's really hard to say you can. Um, I think you could, you could, it's, it's all about balance and it's all about prioritizing what you want to have now versus, you know, pulling back on some of the other areas. Right. No, I, th I think that's well said when, when I have talked to people about this, I always say, well, yeah, you can have it all. It just depends on how you define all. Um, yeah. and you know, I think if you if anyone thinks that there's a situation where you can both be hard chargers and also be a stay-at-home mom and, you know, be at everything, or either parent can, it just doesn't work that way. So all has to be what works for you and works for your family and what, you know, what works for the kids or, you know, whatever your family unit looks like. But, um, but yeah, I think it's, it, it's all about, it all should not be defined by what you see on Instagram or Facebook <laughs> at your kid's school <laughs> because, because uh, that is not all and that's not real. Um, and that's not uh, yeah, real. I, 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 <laughs> I talk to so many women in our industry who, you know, they talk about going to school and dropping the kids off and getting that look from the, you know, the other mom, the stay at home moms. And, um, 
you know, there's, there's, there's nothing wrong with being a working mom. There's nothing wrong with being a stay-at-home mom. Actually, you know, you can pitch in and help each other, each other really. But, um, yeah, I, I totally agree with you. It all, it's all about balance at the end of the day. Yep. Completely agree. Well, so this is, this is a great conversation. We're going to take a quick break. And when I come back, we're going to hear more from Chrissy Pariso. We would like to take a brief break to thank PE Wins founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest. Welcome back to Moments That Made Her with my guest today, Chrissy Bariso, who is the Managing Director of Empowered Capital. Um, Chrissy, I wanted to ask you, are there, you know, are there times that you can think of in your career that led you not just to be, you know, a professional in the private equity industry, but actually they rise to the senior ranks? I mean, there are a lot of people in private equity, but not all of them become senior investment professionals. Are there specific things that you can point to that led you into the senior ranks of the industry? Yeah, well, I I could, as I think through back on my career, I could really think of kind of three key defining moments that really shaped my career. And it all comes down to people that were willing to take a chance on me and me also willing to take on new, new roles that challenged myself and put me in uncharted territories. So I say, you know, right after Sterling, I took time off to actually be a stay-at-home mom for one and a half years. Um, I figured that I was going to have a long career ahead of me, and I wanted to be there for all the first for my first child. And I have to say, being a stay-at-home mom, which I love doing, it's tougher than investment banking and PE. <laughs> so, um, so when I decided that it was actually time to jump back into the workforce, I was networking for GP, LP jobs. And then I found out I was pregnant again. I was like, oh, you know, it's early. I could hide it. Um, but then I found out, surprise, it's twins, um, <laughs> which I was like, okay. After when, when I found that out, I was like, no one's going to hire me, like high-risk pregnancy. So I was actually resigned to not finding a job until um, at least another year or so. But then I had a friend who knew my analytical skills um, from investment banking and private equity. And so he hired me at GE Capital when I was not seven months pregnant. Um, it was a great culture. It really got me back into the flow of working, but it was, the job was analyzing loss receivables, right? Nothing, it wasn't anything that I'd done before, but at that time in my career, I recognized this was what I needed given I was going to have three kids under two at that point, And I didn't want to travel and GE had such a great name. Um, and that was a, you know, that was the first kind of defining moment. The crazy thing was I was only there for nine months because then the second defining moment really happened was when I had two other people take a chance on me. And that was Doug Brown, um, the CIO, and Francis Edehan, who was head of private markets at Exelon Corporation, which is a publicly traded energy company. 
And they hired me to be the senior portfolio manager of private equity at Exelon's investment office. I didn't have any LP experience, right? I was kind of removed because I was at GE. I was a stay-at-home mom. I had kind of a gap in my um, in my resume, but they really liked my background of banking and private equity, and they really thought that my insider experience at G at, at a GP would provide a different perspective as I really underwrote the managers from the LP side. So what was great was basically I had a clean slate to build up the private equity portfolio. Doug and Francis gave me a ton of runway, and they were truly great mentors and leaders. And I'm eternally grateful to them for getting me back into the path of being an LP in the private equity space. And then I would say the third moment is actually leaving Exelon. And I was there for seven and a half years. It was right after the pandemic started. And I left to join Marsha Page and Empowered, really just along with the mission to invest capital in the best in class underrepresented talent across private markets. And so Marsha, if, um, you know, Marsha Page, she's, I think, a trailblazer in the industry. She co-founded Vardy Partners 30 years ago and scaled it to a $13 billion global asset management firm. What was amazing was when she retired from, from Vardy, she really took a lot of time to reflect on her own experiences. And, you know, when she looked back 30 years ago, she was one of the few female founded firms, right? And then we fast forward today, not much has changed, right? And Kelly, you're well aware of the stats, right? And I think this really coincided along with the Knight Foundation report, which highlighted, right, that diverse firms are not only underrepresented at 10%, but undercapitalized at 1.4% of the 80 trillion of assets, right? And we all know the stats that diverse teams outperform. Um, there's so much research behind it. And so Marsha really saw, you know, the diverse manager universe as one of the most dislocated investment opportunities. And so she decided to put a stake in the ground and commit 75 million of her own personal capital back diverse managers. And so when she wanted to launch this, she took a chance on me as well. And I, and I think she would also say we took a chance on each other because this was a startup in many ways. We were both equally passionate about investing in this thesis. Um, and we really took an investment first approach with the mindset that investing in diverse managers is an investment strategy that can generate alpha and it's not concessionary. And at the end of the day, it's table stakes. And so Empowered really started out as a family office with this investment mandate. And now we've evolved into an investment firm now managing outside capital to accelerate more capital diverse managers. And so I would say, you know, this third defining point with, you know, Marsha and I just kind of jumping in with Empowered, I think has really changed the trajectory of my career path. Yeah. No, well, I mean, look, those are all incredible moments. And as you say, it's you taking a chance on the opportunity as well as folks taking a chance on you. You've had incredible mentors in, you know, Doug and Francis and now Marsha, um, you know, I was an investor with Marsha years ago, and it, she was one of the rare uh, female-led firms that we could point to in our portfolio. Not only a female-led firm, but a large firm, right? I mean, there there weren't mm -hmm. that many startups even then, but she was managing a very large firm with a lot of uh, capital under management. And it's, um, 
it's very rare that someone who has had that great success and gone through their kind of succession planning then turns around and uses their hard-earned capital to help other people start their firms and and really provide that type of opportunity. So I would agree with you, March is a really special person and someone I admire a lot. And uh, I was thrilled. I I still remember when you called me to tell me that you were doing this. And uh, gosh, that was so exciting. I think it's, I mean, obviously going to be a great, great next next period for you. And uh, you're already making making waves and making press. I think I saw you in the press today with a, a new firm that you guys are backing. So um, the rest of the marketplace, all of your all of your peers are, are watching and cheering you both on because we're thrilled with what you're doing. Um, so let me ask you a question. Are there moments in time, and I know the answer to this, it will be yes, that you were particularly made aware or self-conscious of the fact that you were a woman, uh, particularly a woman of color, in our industry? Yeah. Um, I think what really highlighted it was when I became an LP. Um, because I love the view that you see being an LP, you know, cause as a GP, you, you're focused on your firm, your strategy, your companies, but as an LP, you get to see so many different GPs in terms of strategy, sizes, stage, right. And you get just a broader view of the market landscape. So as an LP, you know, you were on that side as well. You would meet with so many managers, right? And then just the number of pitch books that I would see. And I'm just, I remember just flipping to the org charts and just seeing the same non-diverse chart over and over again was just so frustrating. And so I remember just starting to incorporate those diversity focused questions early on with the managers, right? How do you think about diversity in your organization? How are you recruiting and retaining diverse talent? How are you creating a culture that's inclusive? And I was really tired of hearing feedback from managers that they couldn't hire women because women weren't applying since the hours. And the reasons why they said the hours are long and there's a lot of travel, right? And so then I remember asking, well, what's your family leave policy, right? And those answers were even worse. And the reason why I started asking about it was because it was right around eight years ago. And it was top of mind because I was pregnant with my fourth child. And, you know, many firms at that time didn't have family leave policies because also they didn't have women in their organization. And when I would challenge them, they would say, well, we we don't have women. So then I would ask them, well, do you have a disaster recovery plan? And of course they would say yes, but they never had a disaster. And so I remember saying, well, you know, creating a firm and culture is making sure you have the right processes and the right um and and the right programs in place to inc- to create an inclusive culture. And Kelly, I remember I was a, on a panel with you years ago and you were moderating it. I don't know if you remember this, but I remember at the end of our panel that I I asked if you could give me some time because I remember telling one everyone in the audience that if they were a manager that was going to come to me at Exelon that they better have an answer to my family leave question. And what was amazing was after that, I had several young female investment professionals come up to tell me, thank you, because they were too scared to ask um, for fear of retaliation, right? And But now that they knew LPs were asking, they were able to come back and say, what is it? Because LPs are asking. And I just knew that the fact that, you know, for LPs, 
being able to ask those questions can drive change, right? Because LPs have the capital. And I think at that moment, it was a light bulb going off where I recognized we could do more. Um, and so that was something that was really powerful. But Kelly, I don't know if you remember that panel. I think it was, was it at the Grosvenor conference or one of those conferences? I remember you moderating and I was like, I have to, I have to just put this out there. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think it was at, um, at my conference, uh, the emerging manager conference after I sold, uh, CFIG to, to Grosvenor. Um, no, and I remember that question. I remember that point so well, because I chaired the industry initiative on women in private equity for NAIC and AIC. And one of the recommendations that we made to firms was that they implement a family leave policy before they ever hired a woman. Mm -hmm. Because for women, if you don't, if it's clear to you that a firm has never imagined a world where they had women, then why would you ever want to work there? And I still remember exactly. that part of it came from my own experience. I remember getting recruited to go work for a uh, um, a firm in the infrastructure in industry, and it was run by a bunch of my friends. And I asked them if they had a family leave policy, and I, I never had any intention of having kids, but I asked them, and they didn't, and they it had never occurred to them to have one. And I just thought, you know what, culturally. If this isn't a place where they've ever thought about having women, <laughs> I'm not sure this is a place I want to be. So uh, I was so glad that you put that question forward because I, I know, um, you know, the policy that we put forward came from a woman relating her experience at a very well-known mega bio firm. And she had been there, you know, not that long in the context of the overall history of this firm. And she was the first person ever to go out on maternity leave and she had to create the policy herself. Mm -hmm. And so that was just shocking. This was a firm that had probably been around for 25 years and she was probably, you know, seven years into her tenure there. So, um, no, I, I was, I still remember you bringing that point forward. It's such an important one. And what's amazing is that it's now like a standard question, right? And I think what it's important is to have it defined as family leave because there's all different definitions of what family is, right? And so it's making sure it's an inclusive policy that not only includes the mother, but the father and then any other type of household, right? And so I, it's just amazing to see the progress, but I think it's also one to just watch just to make sure people are actually using it. And it's just not something that people are putting out there just to say we have it, but they're not really encouraging the use of it as well. I agree. I also truly believe that we're never going to get equity or parity in the industry until it's as acceptable for men to take family leave as it is for women. Um, and, you know, there should be no stigma on either gender or any gender <laughs> um, if mm -hmm. they want to take leave to be with their family. And in my experience, certainly in my own firm as a founder, the more you encourage a healthy family life for the people who work for you, the better, the better colleagues and partners they are. They can focus more on what they do. They can be more dedicated. They're more loyal. Um, compensation doesn't just come in the form of money and it just, it, it makes, it makes everybody better. And I can tell you the, the people who took advantage of 
you know, flexible work arrangements in my firm were more, there were more men who did it than women. And so I think if you create that as part of the ethos of the firm, it really has a big impact on inclusion. I completely, completely agree. Culture is just so important and, and treating your talent and treating your people, how, especially how you want to be treated, right? It's just so, it's such an important part of firm building um, that you can't take for granted. Totally. Well, so what stands out to you today as a particularly fun or creative moment in your career? Um, it's funny because as I think about what it means to be creative, I think it's really about, you know, it's kind of like starting, and I know you love art. So it's like starting with a fresh canvas, right? You have no boundaries, you have no limits, you have no biases in front of you, and it's just building something new in terms of just that creative process. And I would say starting Empowered has probably been one of the most fun and creative periods in my career. Um, it's been amazing to be in this environment where there's such an entrepreneurial feel. And when we were launching Empowered, we really started with a fresh page, really kind of focused on data and the issues at hand, right? And so as, he, as I even think through about the evolution of us going from a family office to an investment firm and the evolution of our investment strategy, like right off the bat, what we did was we started, we spent a ton of time talking to diverse founders. We sent surveys, we listened to what their pain points were from, you know, emerging to established managers. And what was amazing was really hearing from them and listening to them. And what we heard were there these three key pain points, right? And the first one is it kind of goes to this, the Knight Foundation, that 10% stat of firms that are diverse. Like, why aren't there more? Why can't these diverse firms get launched? And I think when we were talking to them, what we were hearing was that, you know, the cost to launch a firm, you know, particularly non-VC strategies, two to five million, right? Because you think about like the cost to hire a team and build out the infrastructure. And then you think about all the systemic and structural barriers that have prevented diverse founders from having that working capital, right? You have the gender and racial wage and wealth gap. You have the fact that if diverse talent has carry, it tends to be a liquid or if they're not from a well-off network or family, they don't have that 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 um, security to be able to do that. And so what we saw was that with all these structural barriers, this resulted in a huge capital funding gap in the market for a need to provide working capital to help firms launch. And so we addressed this head on by what we call our GP structured partnership, where we could provide working capital plus a fund one commitment um, to really help the GPs, you know, build out a team, build out the infrastructure. And then what, what, what was important to know is that we were, what we were hearing from founders too, is that, you know, the wealth creation comes from owning the management company. And so philosophically, we aren't taking ownership in the management company because we want that wealth creation to go to the hands of the diverse founders. But we're also structuring where there is a revenue share component and we're being compensated for providing that startup capital. The second pain point really comes with just, you know, the fact that diverse talent really can't get attribution. A lot of times when they leave a firm, they're not getting an attributable track record. So 
diverse talent? How do, how do they do that? How do they build up a pre-fund track record? And so they need capital for direct deals. So we saw this as a second pain point. And so we'll do those direct deals with them. We'll do co-investments because a lot of times their fund sizes are undersized uh, for their strategy. And then the third bucket is this 1.4% number, right? They need LP capital. So we really took a step back and looked at it with, you know, fresh set of eyes. And we recognized that we could provide a really flexible solution to address all these three pain points across the capital formation process. And so that helped really hone and shape the investment strategy at Empowered. And then we also continued to push it forward. And, you know, and it, it's just amazing, like, as I think about just the Empowered team that we've built, because all of us have really complementary skill sets and background, right? Marsha, 30 years investor, firm builder, you know, mine on the LP side, we have Evi Haney, who has great experience on the structured equity side. And so we have such complementary skill sets. And, um, and as I think about, you know, when I put my LP hat on, of the managers we back, right, we like to back managers that are providing more than just capital to their underlying investments. Because how are you going to drive alpha, right? It's that value add, that, op mm -hmm. that, that operational component to it. And that's the approach that we were also wanting to take with our managers. And so how can we provide more than capital to our underlying managers? How can we do risk it for other institutional investors? And so we really formulated this around what we call our multiplier program and really thinking around three pillars around that firm creation process around providing back office infrastructure support, human capital and business development. And the amazing, we, we have resources and expertise in all those pillars. And so for us, it's really thinking about creatively, how can we be more than capital to our managers and how can we be a sounding board for them? And then two, as we think about, you know, our investors, how do we help de-risk the enterprise firm building phase for that next gen um, manager and that de-risk it for those LPs? And so I think for me, this 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 is a very long-winded answer to to your question, but I think being at a firm that has a culture of innovation and you know wanting to be challenged on trying to find the right solutions to all these different problems, I think really makes this one this such a fun place to be at. But really, I think at the forefront of just this investment opportunity as well. Yeah, no, I think I think the approach you've taken is incredibly creative and. Um, and much needed. They're all elements that people have talked about in the market for for years, but no one's woven it together. I think quite the way you guys have, and I think it's um, you know it's a hallmark of of having a firm where it's led by someone you know and funded by someone who's an entrepreneur who recognizes that you need to have flexible capital and that isn't just trying to do the most efficient thing and try to, you know, make all of the clients kind of invest in the same thing and take the same approach and put the capital out in the most efficient way, because this takes work. You know, this is, this, mm -hmm. this is both capital intensive, but also time intensive to do it right. But at the end of the day, you're helping to position uh, the manager and ultimately yourself and your investors for the best success. So I think it's a very creative way to do it. It's the right way to do it. And no surprise that you're having fun while you're doing it. So it's kind of the perfect that, example. 
Yeah. I, the most important thing is to have fun, right? Life is too short. Like surround yourself with people that energize you, that provide you light and that, you know, and do something that, you know, you're passionate about. I think, I think I, I've just realized that there's too much crap going on in the world and you just got to make sure you take care of yourself and you do things that make you happy and, um, and, and make it fun along, uh, at the same time too. I agree. I, I always tell people it's okay to be a little selfish and you spend so much time with people that you work with that, um, you know, you, if you have the opportunity to create the mosaic of a, of a group of people you genuinely want to be with and you enjoy working together, it is so exhilarating. It is it is really an exhilarating and rare thing. So I'm really happy for you that you're having that experience. Um, well, so the last thing I want to ask you about till we move to our famous lightning round is um, we've talked about successes, but obviously everyone experiences some type of setback, challenge, even a failure along the way. Um, is there a teachable moment that maybe you would share with everybody that, you know, helps to demonstrate the power of resilience? Yeah, I think it's, it's something that I, I know I need to continue to work on. So it's, it's, it's a still a teachable moment for me too. So, <laughs> um, so there was a role that opened up in one of my prior organizations that I wanted to put my hand up for it. I knew I was qualified for it. I'd done the work, um, but I didn't raise my hand because they said they originally weren't going to fill it. And so I just wasn't really proactive about it. But, you know, but then a couple months later, someone else, you know, raised their hand for it and they, they ended up getting it. And so then I reflect back on why wasn't I more aggressive? Why didn't I, you know, why wasn't, even though they said that, why didn't I just put my hand in um, or put, throw my name in the hat? And I think it's one of the things is just underestimating or undermining what my own worth or contributions are. And I think as I look back, you know, Chinese culture is one where you don't really brag about yourself, right? You expect that your parents are the ones that are going to brag about your achievements to the other parents and you just stand next to them and just nod sheepishly, right? <laughs> That's what Chinese parents do. Um, and I think what's interesting is like Empowered, we just published a white paper that talks about increasing diversity and alternatives and the flywheel effect. And one of the interesting stats that we highlighted was a study that said that men consistent, consistently overrate themselves on self-assessments, self Right by 33% higher compared to equally performing women. And this affects women for like promotion and all those things too, raises as well, right? And and I think we just need to get over it. We need to be proud of our accomplishments and we need to be comfortable to, to speak up and to take recognition for it and to actually allow that light to shine on us, right? And so I think that's one of the things that I need to continue need to think about as well, because I, I don't like the spotlight. Um, and I do think it's important that for us to continue to women to progress, um, we also need to make sure that we're speaking up for people that may not be speaking up for themselves. And we need to shine the light on them too, if they're not willing to do it because we need to lift everyone. Yeah. 
No, I totally agree with you. I mean, you know that that's part of the ethos of of PE Win is to um, really amplify uh, women in our industry and make sure that we're sh- shining the light on them. Um, you know, in my experience, what I have found is that women tend to um, rise up not so much when they talk about themselves, but when other people are talking about them. And so mm-hmm. having that uh, culture of encouraging people to praise other women, especially when they're not in the room, because as as we all know, most of the decisions about your career get made when you're not in the room. So you want to make sure that the people are around, around you know what you're doing and they're willing to advocate for you. And you, and you basically mimic that. I mean, the thing that I did throughout my career is I would make sure if I worked with someone on a project, male or female, I'd call their boss or send a note and just say, hey, I worked with you know Chrissy. She was amazing. She, she really added a lot of value. And so what tends to start to happen is then people reciprocate. If they know that you're blowing their horn, they'll do the same thing. Um, but I agree with you. I mean, we talk about it all the time that men, you know, men go in with 80 percent you know, unprepared and women have to be 80% overprepared, you know, and where so we can mm-hmm. be so intimidated. But the thing that I tell people is in my experience, most of the time when you walk into any situation, whether you're giving a presentation or you're taking on a new job, people are rooting for you. You know, they're not looking for you to fail. Mm-hmm. And women are often so intimidated of being, of making, of embarrassing themselves or making a mistake. Um, and it's never as bad as we think it is. It never is. Everybody makes mistakes. You, you, I've made huge ones. You live through it. I promise you, you will survive. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with everything that you said. And I do think what, you know, and thank you so much for everything you've done for PE win and building it up and building this amazing network of women to, um, be a sounding board for each other to, to, for other women to shine the light on each other. So I do want, like, thank you so much for doing that. And you've been such a phenomenal leader um, and trailblazer as well in this industry, Kelly. So I want to make sure I'm shining the light on you as well, too. (laughs) (laughs) You are, you are, you are sweet to do that. I, not necessary, but you're very sweet to do that. Um, Well, I want to move now to our lightning round. And so I'm just going to ask you a couple questions. Tell me what comes to mind. Um, the first question I always ask is, is there a great book or, that you've either read or listened to recently? I am s- sad to say I haven't had time to read any book, but I do binge watch some TV shows while um, after the kids go to sleep and I'm doing emails and I could contribute that the ones I like are Yellowstone, Only Murders in the Building, Succession, and Ted Lasso. And then a another one which is kind of um one that is a very more like a high school one is never have i ever so (laughs) that's just a really cute one ah that's good well you anticipated one of my other questions which is do you have a guilty pleasure show that you binge watch um my most recent one is mayfair witches because as a teenager i remember reading all the Anne rice books and i was obsessed with them so i've been watching that um I don't know. Oh, I've never is, heard honestly. of that but one. It's, it's, yeah, it's about these 
coven of witches who live in New Orleans. I mean, as as a witch would, of course, what city would you expect them to be in? <laughs> uh, New Orleans is such a cool city. Um, but anyway, yeah, no, I've been I've been enjoying that one actually. Um, so, what's your cell phone wallpaper? It is of my four kids. So it's always after we do a family um, picture shoot, photo shoot, I always try to pick the best one and I put it on my wallpaper. Very good. That's very consistent, I would tell you, with our other guests. Um, If you had a career other than private equity, what would it be? When I was younger, I actually wanted to be a vet since I loved animals. Um, However, I realized I couldn't because I don't like blood and I don't like to see animals in pain. Um, so I think I would be doing, I'd be doing something that maybe I'd be like working in a zoo or something, <laughs> something with animals, but not, not treat, not seeing them in pain. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's good. That's a, that's a great one. So are you a dog or a cat person? I am a dog person. We've always adopted the, the dogs from shelters. Um, we have, we ended up have, getting a COVID dog as well. I feel like cats don't like me because, and I, it's too hard to win over their affection. So I, I just love that dog. You walk in and the dog will just give you their, um, unador- like unwavering affection. And so, and the loyalty too. And they're just so cute. So cute. Yeah. We, we, in my house, we like both for years we had cats and now we have a dog and we like them both. Um, and so my final question for you is what's the best piece of advice you'd ever, you've ever been given? Um, I, I heard Sarah Blakely, you know, founder of Spanx speak, um, a while ago and she had a great story about failure. She had said that when she was younger, her dad would ask her and her siblings, uh, every day at dinner, tell me one thing you failed at. And he would encourage them to fail because failure wasn't about the outcome. It was about the act of trying. And I think sometimes failure has a negative connotation, but it shouldn't because those are teaching moments, right? And so I would say it's, you know, always try. Don't be afraid to fail. Don't be afraid to apply for that job or take on new responsibilities. Don't be afraid to challenge the status quo or voice a different opinion and just don't be afraid to like stand up for what you believe in. I totally agree, especially for those of us in the private equity industry. I mean, we're, our industry is all about taking risk. And if you're not failing, you're not taking enough risk, right? You're not, you're never going to achieve the returns that you hope to achieve if you don't fail once in a while. And so I, I think it's a very apt, um, uh, piece of advice for women in the private equity industry. Well, you have been a fantastic guest today, Chrissy Parisa. Thank you so much for joining us at Moments That Made Her and uh, looking forward to see what's next for you. Thank you so much, Kelly. And thank you so much for doing this and giving all of us a platform to share our stories. Um, And I can't wait to hear who the next one is. Ah, uh, well, I can't reveal that yet, but stay tuned. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PE Win Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. 
We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is, and PE1 expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law. Except where acknowledged, the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by PE Win and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without PE Win's prior written consent. Any third party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.